That's like my fantasies. My fantasy career is to become like a Daft Punk. Person, oh, sure. Yeah. Secretly. Like just have a famous, like be famous as an EDM person that nobody knows it's me. Like you wear the helmet and everything. And yeah. And sweaty bodies. I would just pay someone like Trevor like 50 bucks to go be me at those shows too. And I just, <laughs> it'd be fun. Hell yeah. That's my bedtime. I feel like you're way more suited to that lifestyle than I am. Now I'm going to do a uh, dubstep matinees. I'm going to popularize those. <laughs> <laughs> 2 p.m. <laughs> Let's go out to the midway, guys. Oh, well, that sucks. <laughs> Grab brunch and an EDM club experience. That's never been done. Guys, I don't know if I want to roll when the sun's out. I don't know what's going to happen to my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing, Captain? Uh, surviving. I mean, I quit my job last week and, you know, I've just been kind of riding the tide throughout this week mm. until work starts back up next week. I appreciate the nautical reference. I didn't even intend that. <laughs> <laughs> but Matt, I'm already uh, bad at it as it is because starting <laughs> next week, I am um, working at a venue, getting it set up for later in the summer. Uh, I've got a, not a full time, but a every week sound job at a um, church in JP, not JP, Somerville. Uh-huh. And now I'm also accepting stagehand gigs. So Jesus. I'm jumping out of one overworked <laughs> shipping cart into another overworked shipping cart. I can't stop myself. <laughs> I've never known, like as long as I've known you, I've never seen just you be like, yeah, I've got three weeks, do whatever with. Like ever. I so. mean, if I, if I have three weeks, uh, I'm either really financially secure or I'm fucked and I'm accepting my fate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're building a coffin for yourself in real time. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> I've been having a lot of epiphanies over the past. Uh, I guess it's really just one epiphany, but I've been like thinking about a lot of things that I'm suddenly more certain about. And one of them is... I've never been more sure of where my talents are being wasted than I am right now. You got to tell your boss that. And I, <laughs> I mean, all right. So what's worse realizing that a job is an absolute waste of your time or realizing that this job is getting in the way of everything you want to do in life. It depends on if you can escape or not. Yeah, exactly. Like what your next step is defines which is worse. And I don't even think it defines which is worse. I think it's just like defining the problem and then coming up with a solution from there. If you can escape and can enact that solution, I don't think either one is is worse than the other. It's just a good epiphany to have ultimately. I mean, you know, uh, I guess before we start getting into therapy, my actual thing is like my, my the job I quit it literally took so much out of me that like for the last five months, everything in my life has been more or less on hold, no progress Mm. in anything. Mm. So it's like, yeah, that realization, don't know if it stacks up what it stacks up against, you know, well, which one do you think is worse? Me personally? Yeah. Or can it change too? I guess like, is it always consistently like one is just objectively worse than the other or does it, is it situational for me personally? Now that I've experienced it, I think a job that 
takes away my entire life is worse than a job that means nothing to me because mm. a job that means nothing to me, I can at least divorce myself from it mentally to do other things, I believe. Yeah. yeah. I think I'm with you there. Because at least you can space out or something or you can find a way to use the time or you uh, you can find some silver lining if mm-hmm. it's just like six hours of your day or eight hours of your day or whatever are going to be not yours. Yeah. But if it's like 24, you're yeah, it's hard to reconcile that. Ian, I have a question for you. And this is like a hard right turn. Okay. All right. Hit me with it. What defines you as a workaholic? <laughs> what defines me as a workaholic? Yeah, why, um, why are you a workaholic? The shortest answer is I say yes and like to do things. <laughs> but the, I guess the long answer is that, you know, I have a, a lot of things that I like to do. Uh, one of them being I like to do things in service of others, whether it be putting together a show or giving my services to someone that's in need. Um, Joel, actually, I think this came up in the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and it was either in, um, cross discipline or there was something right before it, Hmm. the, the desire to felt need needed while doing something. Yeah. Yeah. It's all a blur to me. So, but I I believe you. (laughs) It's kind of a blur to me. I've been listening like this last week, but anyway, yeah, I think workaholism in a way it can be boiled down to creating spaces where one feels needed, not consciously, but unconsciously creating those spaces just out of the habit of filling that need because, you know, you've probably seen it in the past. Mm. Um, Some people happened into roles in the DIY scene completely by accident, just because they saw a role needed. And then suddenly a couple of years later, they look and, they're just, you know, the this whole thing has consumed them and they're doing it in all different ways and forms. And also sometimes workaholism can be defined by I need one thing that can support this outside ambition that has nothing to do with it uh, because, you know, my hobby doesn't make any money at all. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, by then you're treating your hobby like a, a full-time job on top of a full-time job. You take two... I don't know, make everything happen. I think all of us in this room can attest to having to work uh, a full-time job to make everything around them a reality. Yeah. And, and, you know, I certainly empathize with that because that's a lot of what we started talking about when we first got on this call is believing in the end result and believing in the work that you do, believing in the purpose that you serve and being willing to take on that burden and when it is like in the service of others and it's when it's, when it's in the service of a community and especially when you feel validated and needed and seen for your labors, like that yeah. is a special kind of rewarding. However, I've come across some interesting findings in my research on this topic. We've talked before on this show about like the use of colloquial language and how kind of certain things can be harmful to say uh, if used outside of the context of, of mental health, you know, or used where they don't belong. And this isn't really one that is in the discussion in like the, like, I don't think that you would find like a psychology today article talking about this, but there is a big difference between like calling yourself a workaholic 
and having workaholism in the same way that there's a difference between like calling yourself a hoarder and having hoarding disorder. Like one is kind of a condition and one is a way to categorize yourself as a busybody. You know what I mean? So I found through my reading that I don't think I'm a workaholic or at least like I might call myself that colloquially, but I certainly do not have workaholism because it's actually a very like devastating trait to have um, if, if you really have it. So I don't know. Did any of you get around to doing any reading about this or, or watching? I watched a lot of YouTube videos on it, actually. I, I didn't do a ton. I, I basically just kind of looked up like a rough definition, like in, in just so I had kind of a basis. Yeah. That's kind of why I actually asked and I kind of wanted everyone's takes on it because I can earnestly say I don't know for mm. myself. The reason that I think about it often is my inability to stop, regardless of what it is, has impacted my health and has impacted yeah. my social relationships. And that's not something I'm proud of. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the easy like, oh, why? Because A, I want to make a lasting impact. I want to install all these changes I'm talking about. And at the very least, I don't want to be in the ground and no one can say that I didn't try hard enough. Mm. You know? But sometimes reality sets in and I miss a month or a few weekends in a row or however long it would be, depending on the situation, where I don't see Danny, Mm. who's my partner, because I need to be in the studio and then I need to do the podcast and then I need to pick up some hours at work to pay for those things and then somebody asked me to help them do a feature on this thing. Somebody needs help recording something. I'm being called elsewhere to be on other shows. Most of those are things that I love, Mm -hmm. but then I'm sleeping less. I'm eating less because I'm just going, going, going. And the reason that I wonder if maybe I am a workaholic um, and I don't, I would hate to self-diagnose, but it's just, I have a sincere issue pacing myself. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that is more due to other things that are diagnosed about me, because like, if I like get really invested in like a video game or a book or something, I'll completely like neglect duties to be in that too and it you know just things that consume my time and it's just like my mind needs to keep going but stuff falls to the wayside and they're important things they're life events you know i'm missing life for the sake of work which is kind of why i was interested in everyone else's takes because i know that the people in this room are built similarly in terms of the art aspect especially and i know me and ian live live mirror lives mine just all happen in the day hours and his all happen at the night hours but it's essentially the same thing <laughs> yeah oh, <laughs> fucking um, but i was interested in where all of you fell on that proverbial spectrum because i'm having a hard time placing myself Hmm. And realistically, I should go to a professional and find out. We'll we'll get there, hopefully, someday. Uh, But, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Trevor, please take me with you, because I need to see a professional. (laughs) Put a group on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
I get nauseous if I go to sleep and I haven't finished in air quotes a project. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll keep me up and I will like have fits and it will like affect me physically in ways. And it used to happen. It's, it's stupid as shit, but it used to happen when I was super little and I was playing Minecraft and like Call of Duty all the time. I'd be like, oh, but I could build this thing better or, or I could like hit my next prestige. Like, ah, I can't do this. And it gets all the way to up top where I'm like, yeah, but I could record more of this. I could clean up the pedal board. I could enhance our live rig. Like I could keep working on this stuff instead of crashing for the night, even though my body can't go anymore. And, you know, it's the funny haha of like, if you know me, if we are buddies, you know, I'm in bed by like 930 the latest, because of grandma. <laughs> but the actual reality of that is that I am just like driving myself way too hard all the time when I am awake and I will inevitably wake up in the middle of the night and work on something. Yeah. It mm. will be three in the morning, four in the morning, and I will get up and work on something for two hours and then go back to sleep because it bothers me. It just bothers me. And I can't even put a name to it, but it just like, yeah. And I feel, I feel super unwell. It's like, uh. mm-hmm. so maybe I'm fucked. <laughs> no, but it, it's hard because I mean, this kind of behavior is, it's incentivized. I mean, it's, we've talked about it on this before, but it's something that is valued mm-hmm. and instilled in us, at least in our society. And whenever it does lead to problems, if you try to address those problems, people just sidestep the actual fucking problem and say, oh, you have an anxiety thing or oh, you have a sleep thing. It's like, no, I'm addicted to feeling like a fuck up and wanting to fix that. Like, like when you were describing your pace of work earlier, if you just just took out the word work and replaced it with whiskey or like tequila, yeah, there would be no question right. that like, oh, this specific thing is leading to these specific feelings. Not necessarily like, oh, no question, I need to change my ways or oh, no question, like I'm this or that. It's just that there's a cause and there's an effect and this is most likely what they are given what you've provided. And it's hard to weed through because at the end of the day, I think a lot of workaholics get shit done. It just comes at their own, the expense of their own health. And then yeah, people forgive that. Well, but that's the other thing that. about like what I found interesting about this research is that they don't get a lot of shit done <laughs> because they don't delegate. <laughs> yeah, And that's yeah. one thing that I think kind of removes me from the diagnosis a little bit is that like I often don't delegate because I often don't have other people around. I'm talking specifically about like being a showrunner and stuff like that. Like I will always delegate if there is, you know, a bunch of gear to be moved from the back of someone's van up to the second floor. Mm. But like when it comes to like, you know, if I were to let somebody else edit my music or like edit our podcast or something like I would have Mm. specifications, I would have standards and demands, but Mm. I would be able to delegate. And that's not always easy for me to relinquish control, but it's because I hear things a very specific way in my head. And so Mm. it's, it's tough to know that you share that sort of, as weird as this sounds, sonic vision with other people. Well, do you think there's a difference between getting addicted to the process too, or getting addicted to like tasks and getting addicted to like having gotten work done? Mm. Like, do they both fall under that same umbrella? Like if you just feel like you constantly need to be busy, like your hands need to be doing a job at all times versus you just need to be moving. Process versus completion, you mean? Kind of, yeah. yeah. Like somebody who's like, they're addicted to the idea of what work 
where it gets you. So you're okay with delegating because you're already on to the 10th task, you know? Yeah. Is that the same thing, do you think? Does that fall under the same general category? I don't think so. I think it's one of those research hasn't gone there things. Yeah. Because in similar to how like there's a million antidepressants now, but like there was like one that, that everyone used or, or just like even just like symptoms. You can have a bajillion different anxiety disorders in 2021. Whereas if you went back to like 1970, they would be just like, oh, you're a nervous fellow, aren't you? You know, and it just like, it's how in the weeds and how common and how willing people are to analyze it. I bet there's a million different strains uh, or whatever the technical term would be of it like any disorder that has actually been like vetted and researched and you know however many causes and all of that Mm. i think this also a bit stems from um external or internal drives to do all this work you know some people may run ring up a huge system that depends on them and then suddenly guilt will drive them to do a million things or giving them the want the external want where you know, Trevor, uh, using your example, you have the internal compulsion to do a million things. I don't know. Maybe there's a way. There's two different interpretations of workaholism, and it depends on how you get your work, whether it is self-inflicted or if it is something that you completely volunteer for. Mm. Right. In a lighter note, it's interesting you brought up the delegation thing because that's like the thing I'm worse at. I'm always just like, I'm going to fucking do it. Um <laughs> In an optimistic swing for uh, the Trevor, we shot a studio documentary to go along Mm -hmm. the album we just did. I shot all the footage and I had every intent of being the one who handled all of that footage. John, who is my keyboardist, had made the decision that they were going to take a crack at the video. And I spent the whole night being a crabby little asshole about it. And then we got the draft and they fucking crushed it. But because I'm always so, I have such a tight grip on that shit because of like very few times where I've relinquished control and like happened to get burned. And I'm just like, ah, brah. <laughs> and John crushed it. And that was actually like a really good moment for me personally, because I was like, I can let go a little bit. I can delegate to others when I really need it because what none of them saw because I wasn't putting it out there was I was getting extremely stressed out and overwhelmed with just the workload of what all of our press stuff was going to be. And this was something I took on by myself and had made the decision we were going to do by ourselves. And the payoff has been great, but it's a shit ton of work to edit a year's worth of footage, you you know? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Um, So John saved my ass and also kind of proved to me for no one other than myself that I can just like chill the fuck out and and delegate further. Were they um, doing that deliberately to like take the burden off you? Do you think? No, they literally were just like, it, it was completely on a whim and you know, it it's, it's how John does anything where they just go, yeah, I'm doing this now. And like <laughs> upfront that comes across as super like combative, but in actuality, they're just like, I have nothing to do today. I'm going to try this because I think it will be fun. But yeah. because they are them and I'm me, I was like, fuck you. <laughs> and it ultimately, it ended up being awesome. 
John, John has been a godsend through this entire album process because it's more work than any of us have ever taken on. And they have been absolutely remarkable in this whole workload experience that I otherwise was going to completely take on myself. And I wouldn't complain about it either because I just like sit there and I'm like, I did this to myself. I deserve this. It's like some fucking masochism shit. I don't know. <laughs> but do you think some of it's conscientiousness too? Like, I mean, I know for, at least in my case, when, when I get those types of feelings, some of it isn't so much, there definitely is a sense of like self-punishment that happens, but some of it is also just like, if I weigh the stress of doing the task, but just knowing for sure that it's getting done and it's getting done to the, you know, the best of my ability. If I weigh that against trusting somebody else to do the task, it can result in something very goddamn close to workaholism after a while. But I, I fall into that trap a lot where I just don't trust people enough to delegate a lot of the time automatically. I can do it when I think, all right, this is a good time to delegate. Here's how it's going to feel. Here's mm -hmm. why I should do it. Like I can get myself there, but like my knee-jerk reaction is never to trust my fellow man and say, yeah, here, you, you take a crack at it. I'm sure it'll be fine because traditionally it's never been fine. And that's something that like it isn't a problem with the people. It's been a problem with just the way that I, you know, work interpersonally and stuff. And that's its own thing. But like, I've had to really learn that that conscientiousness will lead you to hell. It, it will get the job done. It will make you, you know, the quote unquote responsible person when like tasks need to get accomplished or like, you know, like something like I never sleep through my alarm, you know, stuff like that. It's like, I'm up, but it's a panic attack. It's not like a sense of duty. <laughs> and I don't know. I've I've just found that over the course of my life, that has pushed me into a box that looks a hell of a lot like workaholism and a hell of a lot less like uh, responsibility at this point. Yeah. Well, I think that kind of ties into something that Ian said a little bit earlier. Is it self-inflicted or is it volunteering? Is that what you said? Yeah. And that's where it's almost like being an alcoholic because you you know, you're drinking to kill pain versus being an alcoholic because you're on tour and that's the tradition. And by the time you get home, you're chemically dependent on vodka. Yeah. You still end up in rehab. Right. So does it function in a similar way for workaholism? Can you be sort of gently nudged into that, that box versus do you throw yourself in there? And that's just about what I was going to say is that like the conscientiousness that you're talking about comes into play when you realize that you have the power to say no. If you're struggling with workaholism and somebody asks you to take on a project for them, if you already got too many things going on and you're making enough money and, you know, whatever. Because another part of this is gig economy, right? Like an mm -hmm. another part of this is like finding ways to make a living within a gig economy and not necessarily being able to say no to some projects. But if someone asks you to do a favor... You can't say no if you have too much going on already. Like, I have too much going on already. And if somebody asked me, hey, could you do a mixing job for me? I'd be like, no, I do not have the time for that. And I would be nice to myself because I know that I don't have the time for that. And I think at this point in my life, maybe because there has been a year of coronavirus and I haven't really experienced any of that external validation. I haven't really experienced that as directly as I used to. Like, I think I've kind of weaned off of it a little bit. Um, and certainly that was part of it. But 
a big part of it too is that I think that I'm a good curator. I think that I'm a good editorial filter for someone's project if they want help on it, if they want some editing help, if they want, you know, some feedback. Like I'll almost never say no to reading someone's short story and giving them notes. But I think I have been much better over the last year or two at knowing when to say no. Because I think that saying yes, whether you take it upon yourself to volunteer or whether you say yes to a request Mm. and you volunteer, or if you're getting paid for it, it is still self-inflicted because you allow the contract to be made. When it's tough when you like to engage with stuff, yeah, you know, like when you're a passionate person, it can be very easy to let things sort of like drift into this, this territory that can be very unhealthy. I think that was a big thing for me to to realize at one point when I was I got a lot healthier about this sort of recently like probably within the last year like I realized I just needed to address this consciously like this wasn't something I could just sort of like it was it was last year you know my plate suddenly became empty and I suddenly filled it with just whatever because I was freaked out at having an empty plate and it kind of clicked that like oh I can this can happen first of all and, and I can fill it again so I need to make sure I know why and when and with what and all that. And I realized that like there is a capacity that I can be at that might not be objectively healthy. Like it might mean like seven espressos in the morning and things like that. But I love it. Like that is where I feel good. That is where I'm, it's a little bit janky sometimes, but that's where I'm for all intents and purposes at my happiest. And it kind of clicked that like as long as that's not causing issues for me and as long as I'm not going around telling anybody else like no this is this is where you want to be like it's it's okay and like you can engage with shit as fully as you want and push it right up to that line as long as it's not causing you issues like you don't have to say well I'm either a complete like blowing it all out workaholic or I'm in a freaking monastery like both of those are totally person to person you know Well, I'm going to share my screen here. And uh, the first three bullet points that I have are workaholism is defined by one, feeling compelled to work by internal pressures, two, consistent thoughts about work when not working, three, working beyond what is reasonably expected despite potential for negative consequences. And I think that we all have at least two out of those three. Yeah. Mm -hmm. However, number one, compel, it's an internal compulsion. I wouldn't necessarily say that any of us have definitively that thing. I have that. You do? Oh, 100%. Dude, I have all three of these, like, a thousand percent. Well, because I was going to say, internal compulsion kind of implies that there is not an external validating factor. Yeah, you know no, what that's I mean? the case. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not healthy. But for a lot of us, like... I mean, and maybe we do all feel like a little bit of of internal compulsion. I don't think I do as much as I used to, but I think that I am always thinking about what the external validating factors would be, you know, like when there is a finished product or if, if I produce an event and there's the shared experience of the event, like, yeah, my mind's on that and I'm thinking about it internally, but eventually it will be an external experience you know and it won't just be like in my mind i'm thinking like i just need to do this so that this little voice goes away 
but I, I sometimes feel it internally, but I think for the most part, I always have external things in mind as my goal. Well, part of that for me, I think it might not be straight up workaholism and it might be a residual of why ever, you know, why I used to struggle with like drugs and stuff like that. Like it's just kind of, you know, there's a hole that I'm trying to fill and now I'm past that other means of filling it, but it's like, it's still there and it'll always kind of be there. So that's why I don't know for sure that I'm like coming at this from the same point of view that I don't know that any other person who's a workaholic would be, but I, you know, well, it's, yeah, okay, I guess I am. <laughs> so, I'm a workaholic. And that got called out. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, for the I li- get- hang on, for the listeners, I just highlighted the drug of being wanted. <laughs> which Trauma was, uh, often stems from being unwanted. Yeah. 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 And that, that's where this related, where I related to this a lot. Um, that was a quote from Gabor Mate. That that hits too close to home. Yeah, that's a great (laughs) quote. (laughs) I know. I feel that too. That is a a very prime example of my tendencies towards workaholism in a way. I started doing sound at shows because it filled a purpose and it made me feel like I had something to do there. Running shows because it gave me reason and it gave me something to occupy my anxious brain sometimes like I don't have to worry about like X or Y because I got this going on and, you know if I do things I'll be liked is the, right. the primal brain thought and I've been taking on a lot more freelance work lately and part of that has been producing records mm-hmm. and I was telling my girlfriend a couple weeks ago you know about how it's so much more fulfilling because it's not just mixing. It is like producing and producing means really having creative input and like, and challenging certain decisions that the performers might be making to say like, maybe this would sound better, blah, blah, blah. So it's like, I get to have a lot of creative input and be creative alongside the artist, which is nice. And I was just talking about how like how rewarding it is because there's a specific type of creativity that is inherent to producing that you don't even really get to use if you're if you're if you're just the artist or just like the songwriter or just whatever. And she said to me something very helpful, which was just don't confuse that feeling for being needed. Hmm. No, I think I kind of get what you're saying. If you let that tendency uh, run awry, you just conflate the idea of working incessantly and destroying yourself with I'm providing value to everyone else around me or to like the people I'm working with. When you provide value to the people you're around and working with just by being there and being like a good person. Yeah, exactly. It's like if you are demonstrating how big of an impact you can have on someone else's product or someone else's project. You can put more energy into demonstrating that than you would into making sure that like the project is good, you know, or that you're building your brand in the right way or that like you're like, like you can, you can give way more energy than you should be giving and then not have time for your own creative pursuits or not have time for your own, personal life or not have time for your own self-care if you're just giving all you've got to demonstrate your value to others up front i was like i don't know if i agree with that in terms of the 
Like it, it's it's a being wanted thing because at surface level, I think a lot of my uh, workaholism is very self-serving in that mm-hmm. I'm trying to get away from a place and like put myself in a uh, sustainable situation. But after listening to you and Ian's points on it specifically, I don't say no to people. Yeah. Um, Because I'm always like, yes, I will do this thing for you. And then I try to like overachieve at that thing, hoping that they will remember it and that that will be like a validation of our friendship or the fact that they like know that I care about them or whatever that leave a mark to the end of when that is not met the other way around. If I ever need something from someone else, I feel really bad about it because I'm like, I will do all of these things for you and you will not do a fraction as much for me. And you're not even a cancer. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think I'm just conceited. Is the (laughs) the But it would make sense of just like it being based in a trauma thing. Cause it sounds like the, the thing that you were citing is it, it's directed to a, or connected in some way to a childhood trauma type deal or any amount of trauma type deal where like something wasn't fulfilled in some capacity. Yeah. I mean, when I think of childhood trauma, I think of like, it can be like as small as not getting picked for the, for the gym class, you know, football game, whatever. Mm. You know, just like not feeling like your value was seen. That would make sense. But for mine specifically, it's more the angle of uh, actions over words. And there was a lot of words, but not a lot of action. And then like the continual disappointment of that. So trying to fulfill that through work now and trying to follow through to the umpteenth degree with what I am saying and like overachieve that to like really assert that I am like holding true and like showing that I'm, I care about the project or whatever. And, you know, when I'm grinding on like bullpup stuff, it's less about that. I mean, it is because the band's mission statement is like dealing with the world. So like, yeah, but ultimately like I would like to like have a career in music. So that part is more self-serving to me. But if like someone asked me to help them move, I'm going to do most of the lifting and make sure that I do most of the lifting. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, So it's like different and not in the machismo, like look how much weight I can put up, dude, but just like, let me help as much as I can. So you do not have to do as much so you can see that I care this much. Um, But also assuming that that means they'll be willing to reciprocate or show their loyalty to you in some other way. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little yucky. Yeah. It's a little yucky. It's a little yucky. Trevor, uh, I have like a weird, and this is like a personal question you don't have to a- answer, but uh, you know is, your love, <laughs> is your love language like um, basically doing things for other people? Acts of service. Would you say it's that? I haven't taken that thing since I was like 16 or 17 with like my high school girlfriend, and it was a huge flop because it was like a slightly non-veiled attempt at just trying to like fix a toxic relationship and it just didn't happen. It didn't work. But the two things I scored highest on were physical touch and words of affirmation. I'm pretty sure. Interesting. Acts of service was pretty high. Gift giving was 
dead zero and i forget what the fifth one is time spent with another i don't remember what the ranking was for me but my my receiving language is for sure quality time but i found that my giving language is more acts of service I also, when I took it, because I've heard that a few times too, there wasn't a giving and receiving. There wasn't for mine either, but I just kind of sussed that out on my own. Yeah, and I think it has been updated to have that. Quality time is the other one, Ian. You're correct. Wait, Joel just said it like five seconds ago. Yeah. Oh, did you look it up? I was busy looking it up, so I missed it. I blinded. My bad. I didn't look it up. <laughs> I just know him. <laughs> Joel's just hit. <laughs> No, but that's an interesting point, Ian, is that like, you know, maybe your love language is just acts of service and maybe you're trying to show your appreciation to others or like to, you know, your employer or some organization through your love language. And can it be said that there's anything wrong with that? I don't know. I think if you have a neurosis about it, like I do, maybe. Maybe it's a little bit wrong. And that kind of feeds into the holism of it because... Is it wrong to enjoy a drink now and then? No. Is it wrong to wake up at 8 a.m. and take four shots first thing in the morning and then continue that pattern throughout the day? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. it is okay to like whiskey. I don't know if it's okay to live off of it. Right. And I mean, that that's what makes it a holism, right? I feel like we're all slightly different types of workaholic. Oh, easily. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, like each one of us has like a slightly different um, flavor that we bring to it and like maybe <laughs> slightly different, like I don't want to speak for everybody, but you know, like a slightly different reason maybe for for wanting to go down that path. Yeah. You know, it seems like just based on like at least knowing you guys personally, it's, it's interesting to me that it's like there are different ways of ending up on that same highway. Mm-hmm. Like Ian, Ian, what do you think drives you to go for, for that lifestyle sometimes? Or do you think you do it at all, like by choice, or do you think you're thrown into it? It depends on like what I'm dealing with. Uh, if it's like show running stuff, it's, I don't have enough time outside of shows to teach people the skills needed to like delegate certain things. Mm. Uh, I mean, I'm actually breaking that cycle right now. My buddy Bryce uh, is coming in here and there to kind of, shadow me and watch me set up the the stuff for shows and kind of you know take shit off my plate in my stead sometimes like there is a show at the music circus at the same time as a show at the um, chess company and I'm not going to be here for it for the chess company show so my buddy Bryce is coming in to run sound that day and you know that, I mean, that's just one thing. Uh, another thing is like, you know, trying to do the extraneous stuff like producing and, you know, um, writing my own material and, you know, doing creative shit. Um, I don't have time cause I have to just make a lot of money to survive and I have very little time outside of that and I have to delegate that. That's nutty. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, you know, capitalist hellscape makes us a, makes me a workaholic. <laughs> yeah. But do you think you would be a workaholic without that capitalist hellscape? Like if, if maybe say that 90% that's kind of imposed upon you by the world were removed, do you think they would still be a similar kind of like, 
you know, just that drive, that kind of fidgety, like, what the hell do I, what am I doing now? What am I doing next? Like, do you think that would still be there at all? Is that there now? I mean, on my days off, I get fidgety because it's like, okay, I got things to do. I got things to do. I got things to do. What am I going to do? And I get fucking blinded. Am I like, <laughs> like I'm wasting my hours. Like this morning, I just chatted with my roommates and like barely did a thing. And throughout the entire thing, I was like, oh God, I've got this recording session at five or six and I got to like try and maybe cram in one more thing to do because I have so little time left and just kind of straight panicking. And I thought that, you know, if I hadn't had to work to sustain my living, I'd probably be the healthiest I could ever be. I'd probably like reserve a full day to spend with my partner. I would have like huge segments of days in the afternoon where I could just do music stuff. Uh, you no, know, hey, I could actually sit down and play a video game and just veg out without having to worry about like I can only play for like X amount of hours before I have to run off to do the next thing. Mm. It, it feels like though it's a cop out to blame the um, the sometimes the circumstances around me because you know if I just stripped back and stopped doing so many things like I probably wouldn't be a workaholic or maybe maybe I would still be who knows. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say, it can't be entirely the capitalist hellscape, because mm. some of this stuff you're doing maybe for free or maybe for very little money. Like a show mm. that you run out of, uh, out of the chess company, you're not making a living off of that, you know? Yeah. Like, that's more community enrichment and being in the service of others, which I totally get. Like, I've also been in that position before, and like, you put a lot of pressure on yourself to do the thing that you're passionate about rather than the thing that you're getting paid for. And it's important to, I think, supplement the paid work that you're maybe not as passionate about with any kind of work that you are as passionate about. But I don't think that the stakes should be that high. I've never found a way around it. <laughs> but <laughs> the stakes the stakes are objectively not as high as they would be if you're living dependent on it, you know. But mm. they somehow still feel like they are as high. I think it's just because, um, you know, you felt it, Joel, the fact that the we have so many hats to wear uh, when doing these kinds of things and having the difficulty to delegate, whether it be like the people that are willing to chip in, mm -hmm. live a far away or don't have aligning schedules. We still have to make something happen by the end of the day. And yeah. hell, if like you and me ran a venue, we'd probably like have a tighter ship and be like, you know, locked in. And, you know, probably not as like crazy running around with our heads cut off. Well, that's the other thing I was just thinking about is like, if you're getting somebody to run sound for you, is there someone who is experienced that you don't have to teach? Because mm -hmm. like I've asked people to run sound for me if I had to like run out and, and get something at shows that I've run before. But I point to people who are there who I know know what they're doing and I don't have to tell them anything. If I don't have my inputs labeled, I have to tell them which inputs are which microphones. But that's mm. it. They know how to run a board. Matt's done it for me before. I think Trevor's probably done it before me before. So, you know, I'm never grabbing somebody to do me a favor who doesn't know what they're doing that I have to teach everything to. And in that mm. sense, like if I were in that position again, I wouldn't be looking for an intern or an apprentice that I had to say like, here's the setup we're working with. I'm going to teach you everything as though you have no experience with this. I'm going to want to like treat it like a job where I'm hiring somebody who already has experience and that's how you delegate shit. You don't want to have to teach someone everything from the ground up. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have the time to teach someone, it just is, 
another stressor that's going to weigh you down in the end. And if you do have the time for it, well, um, you know, just be prepared for maybe learning that you're not good at, as good as teaching as you thought you'd be. Yeah. It's like I, I just left a job where, you know, I, I couldn't imagine myself going back post-pandemic, even though we're not really post-pandemic yet. But I was asked if I would go back, and I said no, because I imagined myself you know, having the same management team supervising me, which I know is like, I'm, I was subjected to a lot of micromanaging. My manager there, like, I'm not going to say that they were a workaholic or not, but they were very, would write down things for me to do that I had already scheduled myself because I coordinated the entire department. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I would have already coordinated everything and they're putting it on my task sheet to complete as though it's them telling me to do it when in fact I'm like running the department and telling myself to do it already. You know, it's like, you don't have to waste energy delegating this to me. That is literally my job is to delegate it to myself and my coworkers that I write out this schedule for. And I couldn't go back to working with someone like that. And I would never want to be someone like that who is, you know, just always approaching an employee or a coworker or something with the assumption that they don't know what they're doing. Like I only want to work with people who I can assume know what they're doing. That kind of faith that you have and that people have in you at work is like one of the more important things to feel like you even have some agency at work to begin with. Anyway, yeah. when you have bosses that assume like you're an idiot, you don't know what you're doing. Let me tell you what you need to do. It's fucking disheartening. And you know, Maybe, do you ever feel the push to like prove yourself in those scenarios? Almost like, screw you, I know what I'm doing. Here's how I know what I'm doing. At first, yeah, but then you recognize someone's patterns of behavior. You're like, oh, you're not going to change. Like, unless mm -hmm. we sit down and talk about this and I tell you how that this is like affecting me emotionally, that it feels like you don't. But the other side of that is that eventually you realize that it's not that they're judging your character or judging your. Uh, work ethic at all it really is that just like they take that responsibility upon themselves to make sure that you're doing what you you do and that's a them problem it's not a you problem mm -hmm. so like i guess that's a really valuable thing too to take away from this episode is like when you're working with workaholics sometimes they won't delegate and sometimes they will but when they delegate they're going to still assume that it's their responsibility for everything to get done. So they assume that you don't know what your responsibilities are. And then they just try to teach you shit from the ground up. And it's really, it's really a waste of time. It's so unproductive. And like, I, I just can't work in that environment anymore or with, with people like that anymore. Even though like I've worked with workaholics and they often have like a great work ethic and they, and they care and it feels nice that they care, but it also just completely, levels your ability to like show that you have skills. So yes, your sense of value and appreciation suffers from it too. Well, it brings up the point too, that workaholism doesn't necessarily mean proficiency, you know, depending on the person. <laughs> like, like if it's a manager who's a workaholic, they might still not be a good manager or like somebody that's on a team or working in, you know, any kind of a cast or a, you know, company or anything like they might still be a crappy team player and just be kind of hooked on the the rush or their job or whatever. So it's like, that's kind of a, a drag, 
about it sometimes is it can lead to that tunnel vision. Or they're just like literally stupid and don't know it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, I feel like the you have an example there. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I wanted to bring up was you know, is there an inherent badness or an inherent like detriment to oneself if their workaholism is in pursuit of something bigger, is in pursuit of like the career that they want? Say you're like an intern and interns famously in some fields have to work way harder than anyone should with no pay and almost no reward except that they get the career that they want or, you know, a good foot in the door to the career that they want. So... Do we think that there is like an inherent detriment to workaholism when it comes to someday this will get me a job where I have to work less because I'll be getting more business because I'll have the reputation, that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Case by case. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, I guess it's the difference between playing for exposure or, you know, like literally just like, you know, stereotypical like gig life or the music thing, playing for exposure or interning at a studio with one guy who's going to remember your name and remember the time he spent with you. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the difference. Would you consider it workaholism too? If it was, if it had kind of an end goal like that, like if it wasn't a bottomless pit where like you're filling something for yourself by working and like, if you're not working, you're freaking out. Like if it didn't have that kind of dynamic, if it was just like, I have to work a hundred hours a week in order to get to this point. Mm -hmm. Do you think that they're kind of two separate I don't want to say disorders, but like almost one of them could be considered a pathology and one of them might just be kind of a potentially unhealthy circumstance. I'm kind of right there with you, Matt. It feels like it's more of a potentially unhealthy circumstance, I guess, sometimes when you choose to do it to yourself. However, I think we run the gamut of shit being a little bit romanticized when we have the stories of people who... um who fight their way through their internships that come from workaholic behavior. And then mm. you only see the few people that succeeded. Whereas the thousands that, you know, failed from it, um, you never hear back from them. And it brings up a good point too, because it does, that is the culture that's kind of encouraged and normalized in a lot of those settings where somebody might be working a crazy amount of hours to a set endpoint. It's partially probably because that is like how you show value mm-hmm. in a lot of those situations. So that kind of, Maybe it is workaholism. It kind of ties back indirectly, at least. Well, yeah, but it can be the kind of situation where it's like, well, this might be pushing myself too hard, but once this is on my resume, I'll have a much easier time getting the kind of work that I want or working in a similar field, but without so much, without feeling as though a lot of that burden is on you. Yeah. However, even when... um like my dad's a workaholic. Uh, he worked for 10 years to get like his cabinet making business going. And I noticed that he still busts his ass to try and make the job work still to this day. And I think even when you reach that end goal, you're still going to have like the awful habits that, you know, are still detrimental to you in one way or another. And maybe, you know, even once you seek the end goal, reach the end goal, you know, you're going to be destroying yourself still because you've, even if it's just taking it in to pursue this uh, goal that you've idealized, there's still going to be elements of that, like outlining the job that you take later on down the line, unless you take serious steps to reevaluate everything, which only get uh, brought up by, you know, 
conflict in your life. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I brought this up already, but with the internship and like the normalization of just like we're overworking it, obviously I'm not necessarily the best speaker on this because I didn't go to school. But the thing that I had always heard about college was, yeah, go get a degree because more than anything, even if you don't end up working in that field, the degree is proof that you're willing to like work and complete something like, and Mm. it's like the, the bust ass and like, Oh yeah, just grind it out now because then people will know that you're capable of like burning yourself out for something essentially, which is maybe a cynical and skewed way of looking at it just because of my own lens perspectives. But like there's something about all of that culture that doesn't necessarily sit well with me. No, I see what you're saying. And I don't think that's cynical at all. Cause like that kind of is what school prepares you for is just like to be up at certain hours of the day to give a certain degree of labor and to get a certain degree of reward from that labor but it's not always the schedule or the amount of labor or the level of reward that everyone is looking for. And in college in particular, like you're paying to do it. The re- reward that you get is not necessarily a reward that you're ne- you need. You're just kind of told that you need it. And it also doesn't come with any guarantees. It's yeah. like, well, they're, they're ha- half of that. Like you're not guaranteed anything, even if you are like the most qualified human on the planet, like you can still get just like, skiffed on which would be like what ian was saying the thousands that just get passed up on because they did the internship and it just like didn't go anywhere right and so even to the extent where like the college culture is like drink a fuck ton of coffee and be up all the time like all jokes aside about us talking about our energy drinks and our coffee and everything (laughs) we're pushing our physicality beyond a place where we can like function without something that is literally keeping us awake yeah like (laughs) <laughs> something clearly went wrong along the way you know <laughs> like, it's like oh you're not functioning unless you are able to outperform what your body is actually just capable of you know i miss that though to tell you the truth <laughs> oh no and here's the thing i love that you know i'm like all about the like sleep less pound energy yeah. like, drive more but like that's probably not good like we probably shouldn't like that even though we do yeah. And I definitely like it. <laughs> yeah. I think during college years, especially like the way that workaholism manifested in me was more just about writing. You know, I just like was working on a lot of fiction and wanting to be a writer to the point where like in social situations, I'd be like, man, this is a lot of fun. But you know what I can't wait to do? Stay up till four in the morning writing, <laughs> you know? Um, and I don't know that I would necessarily call it workaholism, but it's certainly like what I gave the most labor to, you know, Mm -hmm. it's what I labored the most over. And there's definitely a sentimentality to me, like looking back on those years and, and even looking back on like kind of where I was even just a few years ago, there's a sentimental feeling to it. Like just knowing that the prospects were there, certain prospects were there that aren't there now. Certain prospects were like... Yeah, just I had certain goals that I don't have now as well. So it's not like I'm lamenting those prospects not being there anymore. But there's a special kind of feeling when you're young and it feels like if you can just work hard enough, this thing is right over that wall. So I think you kind of develop those habits, though, 
and then they remain habits. And I think that can be really dangerous. And it's definitely been the case for me. Like anytime that I'm unhappy, I immediately go to, well, if I just work really hard at something, I can change. And then like the next thing will be the thing that makes me happy. So it creates this system of otherness. You know, I don't like where I am in my life. I don't feel needed. I don't feel wanted. I don't feel admired. I don't feel appreciated. But if I do all these things right, I can change that. And to me, it's the agency is what is start, what starts to be important with, to, as far as whether or not that mindset is healthy. Because it's if you, it could be true in some ways, you know, if you like have established a very clear kind of um, pragmatic picture of what happiness would be. Like, I need to get out of this rut or I need to get to this place or I want to be doing this job or whatever. Like, and it takes busting your ass to get there. Then that, I think, can be, even if it's momentarily unhealthy by a lot of metrics, it could potentially be a good thing because you can, you feel really plugged in. Like that feeling of like staying up till four in the morning with a good project, like when you're not tethered to it, like when you don't feel like you're going to drown in like a very, like I'm, I'm working myself into the grave kind of sense. When that's not there and it's not crushing you, there's something extremely invigorating and exciting about that sense, that like mad scientist thing, you know, like that's always mm-hmm. kind of going to be cool. But I think it, you're right that like the, the pattern and the habit, those that's where it starts to become problematic if you just find yourself doing that all the time because that's like you believe that the hamster wheel will lead to happiness. There stops yeah. being a map and then it's mm-hmm. like then you're just a junkie for it again. And that's the same as any other holism that could erupt. Right. I think you also just inadvertently pointed out the difference between like flow state and mm-hmm. being conscious of your value. Well, do you guys ever struggle with the idea that like you're leaving some of something on the table too? Like if you're not going to push yourself to a point that would be considered workaholism, like, you know, you're leaving something to be seen. You're, you're not giving your best or whether you're working with or for somebody else or just for yourself, there's like that gut check moment where you're like, am I really done here? Like, did I really mm-hmm. do the best that I could do? I find that that drives me right to that point every single time. Cause I know that I could go a little bit further and I could survive. Even if I'm like, Oh, I'm going to be sniffly tomorrow. Cause I stayed up until late in the morning. Like I won't die. You know, it's like, I found that some of it is about shifting that line every so often in relation to where I am in my life. Like, yes, I could do more, but it would come at this cost and I'm a fucking grown up, and I don't need to pay this for this anymore. You know, like that kind of thing. I've, I found I had to do a lot of work on that, especially in recent years. It's a very cross-country mentality. Like, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> I mean, it, all, all jokes aside, like running really has baked that into me of like, yeah, yeah. but if you did more, you could have like got us more points or been in front of that kid or like shaved off however many seconds. So yeah, for sure. <laughs> no, and the way that mm-hmm. I've found to combat it has been actually like doing stuff like running again more in my life because like that's a place, <laughs> yeah, exactly, because that's a place where like you can... <laughs> You can do that, and it sort of happens in a vacuum. It doesn't happen as much. Um, in its purest sense, it's not as interpersonal. So if I completely fuck myself on a run, I'll be limping, whatever. It's not going to hurt anybody else. It's not going to – no one else's work is depending on that. But, yeah, I, I think for me, especially the more we've talked about it, that's the part of it that I struggle with the most. Like there's definitely a need to please other people. There's a need to kind of um, – 
you know, there's all sorts of personal shit, like just feeling weak mm-hmm. for so much of my life, like feeling like every bit of work that I do is like one step away from that or one point in the disprove column. But there's also that sense that like, I have to look myself in the eye at the end of it and say like, is this really as good as it could possibly be? Like, could we all be doing a little bit better here? Or like, you know, just almost upholding this idealism that is completely unfair to put on the world. Yeah. Mm. One thing I kind of want to ask Matt is, does it feel like it's just stacking uh, personal health versus personal growth um, against each other in the scenario? Um, because I think that thought process maybe prevents you from analyzing um, where you're at currently and seeing like where you can be later on through all these things that you notice later on and think like, oh, I missed out on this thing. This thing that you probably could have like touched on and got the way you wanted it to if you pushed yourself just that further. But it may be just dwelling on the past and keeping you from seeing like, oh, I can just do this in the future at the very least. You know, maybe it's not as applicable to running as one might say, but you know, maybe it is applicable in some way or another. Like I'll change up my running habits and get a little bit more endurance in my system so that the next time I do a run like this, I can like smoke this dude. Mm-hmm. So you say like almost factor in that health a little bit more in the short term so that you have more to work with. Is that kind of what you mean? or? Yeah. And then kind of like, instead of placing it like, I should have done this mm. and God damn that sucks. And I suck more like <laughs> yeah. use it as like a future picture, like a goal to obtain. And maybe it's like a, in the moment you're being dominated by this thought of, I need to do this. I need to do this. Even if it like hurts me, mm. let it be like something you reflect on more and think like, okay, this is where I do better next time. Yeah. No, that is actually, that's kind of the type of, um, work I've been doing on it lately, especially this last probably two years, I've been really focusing on that to kind of disambiguate some of that impulse from some of that result. And and definitely what you said, like, make sure that you sort of take that breath and be like, well, the health is kind of, it's kind of crucial here. You know, it's like you're poking holes in your own boat at a certain point and then paddling faster isn't going to keep you from fucking drowning. So it's, mm-hmm. it's uh, definitely something I've had to grow up and kind of realize, but it's, it was so counterintuitive for a long time. And a lot of it still is. And the only way I've found, I've never been able to get through that myself with anything approaching Zen. It's always like, I just have to trick it temporarily so that I can go to sleep or trick it so that I can like eat a good meal. It's like, that's the only way I've ever been able to do it, but I started doing it enough that it became kind of a habit. So now I know how to throw that switch when I when I need to, it's like, it's like to bring the running up again, it's cross training basically for that. Like I've noticed that I have this friggin' tweak in my brain that like, as soon as I start doing something like, like running, I will want to go as hard and as long as I can every single day until I like get ridiculous shin splint or something happens like that. And then I'll go into a doldrums for a couple of days and then I'll get another thing. I'll be like, no, this is going to be it. And I found that just Mm -hmm. kind of like, Recording each of these things has given me a good way of redirecting that energy with a little bit more agency. So I think all along I had been thinking that the only way to combat my workaholism was to try to identify it and try to be at peace with it and pretend it was never going to happen. But it was almost like becoming at peace with it in the sense that it's always going to be here. So now when I start feeling that balls to the wall feeling when I'm like, all right, I want to run like this many more miles today, 
but I know I did yesterday. Mm-hmm. I just stick to whatever plan I made when I was in a mindset that wasn't as lusty about it. And I say, nope, today we're doing the bike. You can go as hard as you want on the goddamn bike, but you're doing the bike. And then the next day it's like, nope, you cannot do anything because you're going to break your legs. So I'm going to read all these books Joel's mailed me. I'm going to sit down and just, <laughs> I'm going to read this whole fucking round ass book. Like, it's just, but it's almost, it's so weird because it sounds just, I don't know, like almost like I'm still just a junkie for it, but it's really helped me because I've realized like, I love that feeling. I love that flow state. I love that feeling of being turned on and like ready to go but I don't need to expend all of the resources or tax all of the relationships because I can have that self-awareness. You know, I can zoom out and, and like I said, make a plan when you're not in that headspace. Like if I'm in running mode, I make my biking plan. If I'm in biking mode, I make my book plan. Like I write these things up and then I, I trust that I knew what the hell I was doing. And it's really, it's become a rhythm now. And I found it, it's a nice way to do the workaholism, but not burn the health. Mm. But I don't know that I would, like, it doesn't sound like the kind of thing, just saying it out loud, it doesn't sound like the kind of thing that you would want to, like, advocate. It's pretty Gucci that throughout this last almost, like, two hours, uh, we've all come to, like, I don't know, uh, character arc where Joel, you're learning to just say no to a project. Trevor, you're letting someone else take the reins for once. And Matt, uh, you're identifying your problems and giving yourself your own time. Um, and what about you? Uh, I quit my job and I'm learning boundaries. <laughs> yeah. <Hell> yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah. That's all. Love it. Well, Ian, have you anything to plug? Um, Throughout the month, there's going to be a single drop and then an album release for Justin Arena's new record, which I produced all myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm on. That you're yeah. on. Yes. Um, I did some really fun stuff with um, those harmonies, and I th- I think you'll like it. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I've got that to plug, and... That's really all there is. Uh, I mean, when I, if I want to plug something else, it's going to be something that's going to be happening later on down the line or still up in the air because of other people. Yeah, yeah. Trevor, big things coming. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you said mm. September 2nd? Yes. All right. So if you're listening to this September 2nd, tomorrow is the music video for Thoughts and Prayers, which should be coming out September 3rd. We have a bunch of other music videos out already. Veronica Sawyer's Big Day Out, Actor, all of these singles exist on Spotify as well. There will be one other single after the music video that would be coming out this Friday, the episode the, that this episode comes out. And then early October, our album comes out. Um, it's called Be Evil. We have worked ourselves absolutely to the bone making this record, promoting this record, putting everything we have into the videos and the songs. If you have found any of this interesting, I promise you that the songs will resonate with you in some capacity. Just give them a chance. The music videos are a really easy way in if you haven't heard them. Um, It's Bullpup, Bullpup Band on all social medias. And uh, 
yeah, just give them a try. If you don't like them, that's cool. But all I can ask and beg and plead and cry and annoy you and find out where you live and what you smell like, <laughs> just please give it a shot. Um, as Matt can tell you, I'm so big and scary now. I can totally beat you up. Even if you're a pro fighter, I can take you. If you He's wearing a tank top right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so basically, uh, give me all of your money. Validate me. Tell your friends about my music. I have so little. As you can hear, I'm a horrific workaholic. And what will solve that <laughs> is if uh, my band is successful and lucrative. Will that solve it? <laughs> yeah. No. It's it's everyone else's fault, Joe. That's actually exactly what we explored in this episode. Yeah, I feel like we had to go back like an hour too. I will. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned nothing. I want all of you. The world at large is responsible for me and my actions. And listen to Bullpup uh, every day, a hundred years. Bullpup.com. Bullpup Bank. Instagram. Give me your money, please. Thank you. Oh, my fucking Christ. All right, I have a question. Yes. I know we can't call these wife beaters anymore, but can we still just call them beaters? <laughs> I mean, Danny, Danny calls it a wife beater. So I, I don't know if that's, I, I think that that is like the term for it. It is just like an unfortunate term. If the shoe fits, man. It's also not a complimentary. You're not saying, oh, that lovely wife beater you're wearing. It's like, <laughs> it's like hey, that guy's wearing a wife beater. Listen, like, I don't think it's... It, it, Everyone it, it, using that word is just telling you how you look. I mean... Right. <laughs> and here's the thing. As much as I love all of you and care about you more than anything, I have been moving boxes for the last three days. I didn't exactly come dressed to impress. I don't know if you see the color of the shorts that I'm wearing. Oh, yeah. I don't even see this horrific... That neon orange hot summer orange yeah 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 I mean, that's actually a pretty good orange i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> i know i have shit taste you don't have to tell me <laughs> oh hey uh one thick th quick thing i want to plug oh, i guess yep. um so uh this is not me my personal thing uh my roommate max berry uh is going to be having his first show first project no leader you may have seen it with playing with circle brook uh, and it's going to be happening October 2nd at the chess company yeah. and it's going to have Gabriella Simpkins and Joel. I talked to you about this. You were down for it, right? Yeah, I'm down. All right. Yeah. Joel Bungeon and uh, one other act to be announced. Yeah. Matt, do you got anything to plug? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Can people buy those hats? What? Can people buy those hats? Because if I, I didn't suppose. know about it, no one knows about it. <laughs> Uh yeah. No, I know about them. Yeah, Ian knows about them. Okay, Ian's cool. <laughs> it's because Ian supports me, Trevor. Matt, we were supposed to go mountain biking and you never messaged me. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to embarrass you, Trevor. <laughs> I'm trying to grow. And that's our first season. As always, Black Market Therapy is a Dead and Mellow production. And to stay in touch with us, you can follow Black Market Therapy and Dead and Mellow Records on social media. You can also send any questions or comments to blackmarkettherapypodcast at gmail.com. We'd like to thank all of the guests that joined us for this season, and we look forward to having a lot of them back on the show soon. For now, we'll be taking a brief hiatus from full episodes, but in the meantime, please join us for the thought experiments that we'll be posting weekly leading up to the premiere of Season 2 in October. We'll see you soon.